aware that sometimes we have PowerPoints and it makes aspects of what we do kind of nonsensical to anyone listening. Um, and there's going to be a video today and some photos and stuff that give context. So um, if you could have like a podcast monitor, someone that can just put their hand up at various points and go, oh, you need to say more for the people. Yeah, I thought, it w I thought Anthony, I was hoping he'd be here actually. Uh, so he could be a, like a close-by podcast monitor, but that's fine. You might have to shout out, context, something like that. Um, but I'll, I'll try to give podcast con consciousness context as we go anyway. Um, you're meant to tell lots of stories when you preach. You know, it's all about narrative and people remember narratives and don't just talk about ideas. Um, unfortunately, this is going to be a little bit ideasy. Uh, so I apologise in advance for that. I try really hard to think of stories, but I'm not very good at thinking of them. But I did think of one just before, which is not at all relevant to what I'm going to say, but which is relevant to the Thomas Merton quote. So I'll tell you that story, just so there is a story to start with. And I'm going to, in, in honour of Reed, I'm going to set it in Minnesota, because I think it was somewhere around there that this story took place. Is this guy talking about how he understands the relationship between us and God and the notion of, of guidance and our involvement in God's work. He tells this great story about his house in Minnesota and so every winter it, the ground freezes and everything dies and so every spring they have to completely replant the garden and his young daughter, three or four years old, always loves to help is three one year I guess and four the next but she she wanted to help and uh, so loving her as he did he said of course you can and he talked about the process and the fact of you know he would dig the appropriately sized hole for the plant and then he would go to get the plant and while he was going to get the plant his daughter would dig a deeper hole and so he would then have to come back and put the plant down to put some soil back in the hole and while he was doing that she would pick up the plant by the stem and put it in the hole and so break the stem a little bit so he would have to bind up the stem of the plant while she went off to grab another plant and dig another hole that was too big and he said this to his mind is is the way God is with us and yeah? we like to think that we know what's going on we like to think that we um our contributions are really kind of targeted and really kind of wise in allowing God to unfold the plans that God has. But really, well, just like three-year-old children who, and God could do what God wants to do much more easily without us, but that's not the point. The point is not efficiency. The point is relationship. And so God involves us in the work of the kingdom. And the point of the story, I'll read is here. I'm setting my story in Minnesota for you. Um, and uh, the point of the story being that if we focus on trying to get it right, we miss the point. But if we focus on God and focus on the joy of being involved in God's work, then we understand what's going on. So Shane's already given a little bit of Oh, this is where the story really begins. This is where the podcast really begins, everyone. Um, Shane's already given a little bit of context for us that we're looking at Colossians in the next few months, years. And uh, last week we read the book together. 
Um, two weeks before that, uh, Shane, I guess, gave us some guidelines as to how we will be reading Colossians and the spirit with which we will be reading Colossians. Um, that we need to have a respect for the foreignness of this text, that this is a 2,000-year-old a text and that we need to bear that in mind as we read it. Um, that we need to think about what it meant for the original readers before we think about what it means for us and we need to think about what it means for us before we think about what it means for us as individuals. Um, so respecting that process. And lastly, to, to be kind to each other, you know, to be open and generous with each other as we, we do this group theology project together uh, because um, there will be difference and there will be difficulty in trying to come to a, a shared understanding and some differences will remain at the end of this process and that's okay. Uh, the week after that, Steve gave us some historical context. Um, so, uh, yeah, you might want to listen to that before you listen to this. But he gave us some context just to help us in that process of understanding the foreignness of the text and trying to understand what it meant to the original readers before we understand what it means to us. So the last thing I guess to say before I move on is that um, the process of reading all your comments and all your questions and all your feedback about Colossians and then working out what we're going to do with that is going to take a little bit of time. Um, and so today I'm just kind of buying us a little bit of time <laughs> by showing you some videos and some photos. And, um, but next week... Um, the plan is that we will give you kind of a preliminary sense of the themes and shared common questions that have come out and then after Easter we will um, start to address those together. Uh, so that's the plan. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a, a film question. A cat might know the answer to this one. <laughs> I don't know. It's, um, it's whether anyone is familiar with the Kuleshov experiment or the Kuleshov effect? No? No one? Oh, that's good. Um, so the title of what I'm going to talk about today is The Kuleshov Effect or Cutting Paul Some Slack. Um, I'm going to um, let Alfred Hitchcock explain and illustrate The Kuleshov Effect um, for those at home, uh, you can just go to YouTube and put in Hitchcock Loves Bikinis and you'll be able to find this clip. So, Jess, can you uh, put it up? It's a bit difficult to, to hear, but just, you know, I'll explain afterwards if you need me to. In what one might call pure cinematics, the assembly of, of film and how it can be changed close up. Let me show what he sees. Let's assume he saw a woman holding a baby in her arms. Now we cut back to his reaction to what he sees. And he smiles. Now what is he as a character? He's a kindly man. He's sympathetic. Now, 
let's take the middle piece of film away, the woman with the child, but leave his two pieces of film as they were. Now we'll put in uh, a piece of film of a girl in a bikini. He looks, girl in a bikini, he smiles. What is he now? The dirty old man. He's no longer the benign loves babies. That's the split. That's what film can do for you. Or you for it, as it were. I love the last shot of the sinister Hitchcock. Yeah. It was... Could you hear that? You get the idea anyway. So the Kuleshov effect was this Soviet filmmaker in the 19, late 19-teens, 1920s, and he used the exactly the same shot of an actor intercut with different images and then asked the audience what the actor was feeling in each shot. And the audience said, oh, he's feeling hungry in this shot, he's feeling lustful in this shot, he's feeling um, sad in this shot. But the shots were identical. Bless you. So the point of the effect is that it alerts us to the power of context, the power of the context of images, the power of the context of words um, to shape the way we understand those words. Um, and I want to, I guess, give you another example that I think is a little bit closer to what we meet in Colossians because it's an example that involves text. So I'm going to show you a speaker, and I'm going to read you a bit of text. Oh, sorry. Yes, very good point, podcast monitor. Um, so let me describe the speaker to you. Uh, he's a white supremacist uh, <laughs> who is on a rant with a microphone. Uh, so I'm going to read you a bit of text, and I want you to pay attention to your emotional response to this text in combination with this image. I'm just going to try to read it flatly, you know, with as little emotion as possible. I'm sick of all the foreigners coming to this country and stealing from me and my kids, from the people like us who were born here, who grew up here. This is our country. It's not theirs. It belongs to us. The government should be doing more to stop them from coming here in the first place. I don't even know why they do come. They don't try to fit in. They just live here in their own communities, keep to themselves. They all think they're better than us, but they're not. I just wish they'd all go home. So what, what are the responses to that text in combination with that image? How does it, what does it prompt in you? Anger. Yeah, a sense of intolerance. Narrow-mindedness. Disgust, ignorance. Anything else? Sorry? Sadness, it prompts sadness in you about, yeah. Yeah. Selfishness, yeah. Well, that's the thing I thought too, that that sense of 
someone with power and privilege um, not wanting to relinquish any of that, not wanting other people to, to share in that. Um, so let me show you another image and read exactly the same text and we'll see how we, what other emotions are prompted. <clears throat> oh, sorry. <laughs> See, it's really helpful to have a monitor. Um, so this is a picture of an African woman with a baby on her hip. A black African woman. There are white Africans. I don't want to be racist. Um, but they're not here today. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, there's one. Welcome. Yes, that was a white African for those listening. <laughs> I'm sick of all the foreigners coming to this country and stealing from me and my kids, from the people like us who were born here, who grew up here. This is our country. It's not theirs. It belongs to us. The government should be doing more to stop them from coming here in the first place. I don't even know why they do come. They don't try to fit in. They just live in their own communities, keep to themselves. They all think that they're better than us, but they're not. I just wish they'd all go home. So how, you know, how, how does that context change what you would feel about that text? So what, what, what do you feel instead of what we felt before? So, it, I mean, there's that one, that's the one response of going, oh, yeah, I should be, surely I should be responding the same way because it's the same text. But in some ways, the context does make a difference, does make a different response legitimate, yeah. Oh, sorry, Kat, Kat just said it, it, it makes her feel kind of like, why do, I shouldn't really feel differently. It's just kind of questioning herself about why do I feel differently given that it's the same words. Uh, why does the context of a different image, surely it shouldn't really affect the way I respond to those words. Anna. I think there's a whole lot of, I guess, intersectionality, if I can use that word, coming into play here. Um, and oh, it means different factors like gender, race, all of those things affect like we have kind of subconscious bias as well of how we interact with images. And so there's a child in the picture and then, but also her posture as well affects, yeah. Um, and, and I think also our understanding of, like you talked about privilege and our understanding of privilege is the kind of, that image of the heterosexual white male holding on to privilege and so felt like the first piece was someone speaking from a place of privilege and the second piece, even though it's exactly the same words because of the image of this woman who we associate with not having privilege and being disadvantaged. They, it, it was from a context of someone speaking about other people 
behaving as if they have privilege. Yeah, exactly. So that, that notion of power is completely different. It's like the disempowered wanting to share in something versus you know, the privileged coming and stealing the little that we have. Which, yeah, it's, it is so. It's a very different context. I think I have a slightly different response in that for both of them, it just made me think of the people that are coming. So even to the African context, people who are coming are fleeing civil war, economics. So almost that feeling that nobody wants to leave their country and to actually come, no matter where they go, they, they're coming, almost, not against their will, but because they're forced to. And that almost feeling of unwelcome, no matter what, what context it is. Well, that, and that's, that's such a fantastic point to go, who are they? Yeah, we might assume that this is foreign multinationals coming to take resources, but are we talking about Rwandan refugees fleeing genocide? I mean, it's, it, it depends entirely on who they are, but it's so easy for us just to assume that we know who is being referred to without just, just completely unconsciously assuming that we know who is being referred to, who they are. But do we? Did, you, did someone else want to? I was thinking how we derive meaning from context. So in those two different ones, what is being taken, there was a thing about they shouldn't come and take what's ours, and the two different pictures led you to a completely different context. So in one I was thinking, okay, they're taking our um, financial resources, and the other one it might have been, you know, like somebody like a Madonna, they're coming and taking our children, you know. So we don't know what's being taken, and we only find that out by our assumptions through the context. Thank you for that. Um, so that's, a, I guess, a long way of getting to what is um, a fairly simple point, I guess, and that is that context is everything. Context plays such an enormous role in the responses that we have to images and the responses that we have to words. Um, and when we come to a text like Colossians that is so distant from us, 2,000 years in the past, in another part of the world, and when we come to a writer who is so distant from us, um, we need to be even more careful about... Um, the unconscious assumptions that we make about the context, the unconscious assumptions that we make about the writer. Um, and uh, I was just thinking the other day about um, uh, a person that I know well who said to me that um, Susie is, a, is just a much kinder person than you are. Susie is my wife for those who don't know her and for those at home. Um, and again, it's, it's another great example where you go, but who, who, you know, what's the context? Is it your, you know, your couple's therapist, yeah, who's, who's giving you this really powerful feedback? Or is it, uh, as was actually the case, your five-year-old that you've just told, can't watch, can't watch any more telly. <laughs> context is everything. A great example is in the Old Testament, the... Um, 
the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, and I think um, that's a classic example where if we take our, the context of our own culture to that quote, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it seems punitive. Um, where's the space for forgiveness? Where's the space for um, for letting go of wrong? Um, it seems like a very strict form of justice. But then, if again, if a quote like that in context of a culture where the norm is blood feuds and where the norm is, you kill a member of my tribe, I wipe out your entire tribe. The idea of saying, no, don't, don't allow violence to escalate. If there is an act of violence, there should be an act of exact reciprocity and then it finishes. This is an incredible moral step forward to leave behind blood feuds and to move towards a system of strict justice where you are seeking to curb the escalation of violence. And I guess when we look at Colossians, we see a lot of similar examples of this. Um, Actually, I'm going to go and get one of these. We're going to look at, at this in a lot more detail as we go through Colossians. So I'm, not, I'm just going to look at one example of the power of context as it relates to Colossians. Um, but I think it's a, it's a pretty powerful one. And it's one that stood out for a lot of people last week as we were reading. And it's the, the household code in Colossians. So the household code is the section where Paul talks about husbands and wives, slaves and masters, children and fathers... So let me just read that to you. Um, it's from chapter 3, um, 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And again, like the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth passage, if we bring our own context, the context of our own culture to this passage, it seems quite reactionary, seems quite conservative, quite controlling. But when we read it in the context of other much more brutal household codes circulating at the time, then we realise that this is actually, for the time, incredibly progressive. Most of the household codes at the time didn't even mention wives, didn't even mention children, didn't even mention slaves. They were invisible. And yet Paul not only mentions them, but if you look at the order, they come first. Wives are addressed before husbands. It it is a profound transformation of the power structures that existed at the time and a profound 
critique of the household codes that surrounded this household code. One of the, the writers that we've been reading and that we'll be um, using in the next uh, few months is a guy called Ben Witherington. And he, he writes about Paul's household code in this way. He says, Paul works hard to ameliorate, that's just a fancy word for make better, um, the harsher aspects of existing institutions. He must start with society as he finds it. Then he attempts not to attack the problem in the public sphere, but rather to put the leaven of the gospel in the structures of the Christian community and let it do its work over the course of time, all the while advocating Christian treatment of all members of the household. Now, we might, we might look at the, the comment about not attacking it in the public sphere and go, well, surely, surely he should have attacked those institutions directly. Um, but this, again, is to forget a very important aspect of the context and that this was a very marginalised, very subversive community within a very powerful empire. And any direct attack on the existing institutions in the empire of Rome was going to bring quick and swift retribution. And so Paul is, is working very... We'll look at this in, in relation to slavery and other issues down the track, but Paul is working in a very, very difficult context, a very fragile and precarious context. And anything subversive that he does has to be coded to avoid retribution. But the other thing that, um, that Witherington points out in relation to, particularly to the slavery issue, is he, he reminds us that in Paul's culture, no one, absolutely no one, was advocating the abolition of slavery. No one thought that this institution should be abolished, not even the slaves themselves. There were slave revolts at this time, but when they occurred, they were in opposition to abuses in the system, not in the pursuit of freedom. So it's like, it's like a possibility that's not even in the horizon at that time. This is so hard for us to imagine because the idea of slavery being evil, the idea of gender equality is so common sense to us. It seems like it, it's inconceivable that it could not be within the horizon of a culture and yet it was not within their horizon. It was not conceivable that you would abolish this institution. It's, um, I guess the other thing in terms of cutting Paul some slack, the other thing that we need to remember is that um, his conversion was not that long before he started his missionary journeys, he started his writing his letters. Um, and anyone that's involved in a, an overwhelming transformation of the way that you view life, an overwhelming paradigm shift, it takes, it takes time for, for that to filter through to every aspect of the life around you. I, um, I love this... Um, this quote from Thomas Watson, the president of IBM in 1943. 
I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. So we probably have about 100 times as many computers in this room as that. And so here's someone at the forefront of another revolution, the computer revolution, going, well, you know, this is really important stuff, but there's probably only room for five of these things in the entire world. It gives you more sympathy, I guess, for someone like Paul, who is also at the forefront of a revolution, this gospel revolution, trying to work out what the implications are. And it's easy for us, 2,000 years down the track, as beneficiaries of the revolution that he began. It's easy for us to go, but aren't the implications obvious that this should happen and that should happen? But, yeah, we need, as we read this text in the coming months, we need to constantly remind ourselves, as I said at the beginning, of the incredible foreignness of the context, the incredible distance that exists between us and this writer and this letter and um, to be as kind to Paul as we read, as we are to each other. So I'm just going to finish with, uh, I, I think, an important proviso and and that is that I think becoming familiar with the context will definitely enable us to cut Paul some slack and it will make this book easier to engage with. It will make it possible for us to, um, to mine it for resources that will allow us to transform um, our own context and to feel the, the power of the message of Jesus in our own context. But that's not to say that there will be no triggers left at the end of this process, um, that there will be nothing left in this text that, to, that will catch in our throats. There will be things that we struggle with. There will be triggers. There will be difficulties in this text. Um, Paul may not be the demon that he's sometimes painted at, but, as, but he is an angular and difficult character, and that, that remains even once we understand him in his context. So I guess I just want to quickly make two points about that. And the first is to remind us, um, uh, as the great theologian Miroslav Volf does in um, Exclude, his book Exclude and Embrace, that while we were yet God's enemies, God died for us. And that this is the motif that is to shape every aspect of our lives as followers of Jesus. We are to be people who embrace our enemies just as God embraces us. And Paul has become an enemy to some of us in this community. Um, I know that at times in my life, I, he's been an enemy to me. And so I guess the point is that we are called to embrace him just as we are called to embrace our other enemies. Um, but let me add that I don't think that we are called to embrace him in a simple act of will uh, that represses and shuts down the intense emotional reactions that we might have to some of these texts because that's something that all of us or a lot of us have done in our past church experiences to our cost, shut down and repressed things that we have a reaction to because we feel like that's what we're called to do. But I don't think that is what we are called to do. I think what we're called to do is not shut down but expand 
And I think what is required as we engage with this text are not so much acts of will, but acts of imagination to expand, to expand our imagination so that we can um, allow the horizon of our context to intersect with the horizon of Paul's context in a way that releases life from one context to the other. I guess an example is to try to put ourselves in the cell, the prison cell that Paul is writing from. To connect with his anxiety about the tiny and fragile communities that he has started within a vast and powerful empire. And to remember, as I said, that he is only a few years on from this overwhelming life reorientation, going from a zealous Pharisee and persecutor of the church to one who preaches freedom from the law. Before we move to communion, I just wanted to just have a little time to see if there are any other, any comments or any questions. Yeah, Anthony. I'm not sure if it's particularly about context, but one of the things I found really challenging with reading Colossians is that it's so dense. You know, I'm used to reading books that would expand. It's just written so differently to contemporary writing that we interact with now. And so to try and pick the meaning out of this, it's like just layer upon, it's almost impenetrable. So I don't know if you've got a comment around how do we deal with that. Um. I, I mean, I guess without going, saying too much, I guess the, uh, the simple answer is to say that it's yet another aspect of the foreignness of the text that we have to grapple with and that we will grapple with over the next few months to go, how can we um, kind of reframe this in a way that helps us to, um, to mine this text for riches when yeah, a superficial reading is... yeah. Makes, it seems yeah, it seems so dense and seems so impenetrable. Yeah, so that yeah, that is something that we will address more. Just the way he writes. Yeah. I haven't really formed this thought yet, but I was thinking about how it's also important to consider the part in the body of Christ that Paul plays. Um, I think that apart from the historical context and the societal context, he um, was an apostle of Christ and had a real prophetic voice. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't really know what to say. I just think it's important to think that we're all different parts of a body and we're going to sound different when we're conveying things. And mm. Yeah, and perhaps that's part of that attempt to expand our imagination to kind of incorporate the uh, yeah the different aspects of his context and the uniqueness of his role um, as we engage with the text, rather than trying to just go he's an authority over me and therefore any kind of yeah, anything that that I struggle with in this text I just have to push down. But yeah, just trying to to engage with every aspect of who he is. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd just maybe add to that, that, you know, one of our jobs is to um, 
Well, one of our challenges is to work out how to, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to kind of unlock the mind of Paul and unlock the, the, the context of this letter and, and eventually translate that into, into our lives. But one of the things that might release us and free us to do that is to see that, um, you know, within the, within the scripture itself, there's, there's, there's angles on truth here. They're all um, working together to describe something, but they're not, um, they're not homogenized and they're not one voice. And so what we're trying to do in Colossians is trying to go, what was Paul saying what was he, and why was he saying and that and that, what impact did that have on that community and, and, and what might that say to us, um, which is very different than kind of approaching the text as the Bible says, um, which is this kind of totalitarian block text um, that we've got the capacity to kind of um, engage and weigh and measure and interact with this, um, with the different voices within scripture rather than kind of reading it all as kind of a text that shouts commands at us that we kind of are defenseless against. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that I was going to talk about but chose not to um, was the notion of the metaphors that we use for the Bible. I mean, if we say the Bible is like, how do we end that sentence? And I think a lot of us grow up with this idea of the Bible is like an instruction manual um, that, that exists outside of time. And you just read it and you follow the instructions. And it's incredibly linear and, in, and kind of with no sense of chronology. Whereas um, N.T. Wright, the theologian N.T. Wright, he says the Bible is like a play. And his idea is that, you know, we have the first four acts, you know, creation, fall, the Israel, and then um, Jesus. And then the, the next act is the church. And this is an ongoing act. And for us to engage with the Bible, it's not a matter of reading this verse and applying it to our lives, but allowing the whole text to filter through us for the themes and just just with a play for the themes and the kind of layering of truth to filter through us in a way that with imagination we can apply it to the uniqueness of our context. So it's a very different way of thinking about the Bible, and I do think that challenging the, the kind of metaphors that we bring to the Bible of what the Bible is like can, can free us, I guess, from, from ways of reading it that are really kind of destructive to us. That was actually quite a good segue into my question, um, in that um, I guess my, um, I accept that we can be inspired by Scripture, um, but I'm always wary that maybe Scripture is inspiring me in the wrong way. You presented a, a case for, you know, we read Colossians and it says wives submit to their husbands and and painting it in the historical context that you did, you can say, well, look, this is a progressive step forward and we can be inspired by this to make further progressive steps forward in our own life. But I guess another reading could say, well, this is a conservative step backwards and maybe we should be inspired to actually have a more conservative traditional understanding of family and life and justice and all the rest now it's not how I like to see it but I I, how do I know how to be inspired through this text Uh, it's not an instruction manual but I'd like for it to um, be able to provide inspirational inspiration and instruction in the broadest sense in my life does that make sense I guess that's the that's what has happened, I think, with a lot of Protestantism is that because we've left behind institutions, we've left behind 
community, we've left behind authority and all of these things, and just, it's like the individual in the Bible, it creates this incredible pressure for the Bible to be simple. Because if it's just me and the Bible and I have to work it out, then it must be incredibly clear what it's saying to me, yeah? And I think that that insight is a very powerful insight, and what it says to us is that we cannot do it alone, and to do it alone is extremely dangerous, because the Bible is not an instruction manual, and so we need each other. Uh, we need, with great humility, to submit to each other, to, to work it out together, but also to submit to all the people that have come before us, to, to engage with their wisdom and what, what they have, how they've made sense of it. Um, so it's that, it's that Catholic thing of the kind of tradition and the Bible and community working together uh, because it's not it's not easy it's not something that we can do alone because the bible doesn't work that way yeah we might have just two more maybe this is the most i've ever talked at church but as apart from what you're saying which i completely agree with i think it's so important to acknowledge the role of the holy spirit we've been given to guide us as well i know that it's also important to use our head and approach this as a cognitive task but We've also got something greater and deeper within us that can powerfully and supernaturally help us through this. Yeah. And I think we really need... The importance of prayer in this process is, like, huge. (laughs) I think the irony is because we have tried to do it intellectually, we've then used the Spirit of God as as a violent hammer to beat down other people's opinions and I think it's it's the dominance of the head and the dominance of intellect and will that's that's often allowed us to make the spirit our slave and you I have the spirit you don't and that kind of mentality and I think by paying more attention to each other by being more humble by being um having more attention to the body and to our emotional states and to uh, our senses I think um we actually tune much more into the spirit within our community. And um, I think for too long the church has seen kind of spirit and, and the self as in, in, in conflict. Do I pay attention to myself or to the spirit? And I think as often as opening ourselves up to each other, that's when the spirit of God flows. But I think prayer, as you say, is crucial with that. There's one more over here, Amy. Yeah. What Matt said just reminded me that we've talked a lot about the historical context, which is amazing. Um, we can't forget our own context as well. Um, I think often that um, has a big impact on the way we read the text when we're trying to, you know, as you say, gain inspiration from it. Um, but we've got these goggles that we see it through and often you know, privilege comes out, the things that, that we like to hear um, it's very easy to say, well, great, God has, um, God has said, you know, I'm the head of the relationship as, as a man, and therefore it's easy to accept that when, um, when it is something that we want to hear. Um, and again, there are other things that are difficult to hear because maybe they might say something that uh, is not what we want. Um, so as much as they go hand in hand looking at the context of writing and the context of reading that we've got to take off our glasses and look at them rather than just looking through them 
Thanks, Amy. Yeah, I, I listened to this great talk by Brian McLaren the other day where he was asked, but what, you know, what are you reading? What should we be reading? And he said, he said the most important thing is just stop reading white men. Um, you need to be reading theologians from other parts of the world. You need to be reading more women because of exactly that danger, that if we keep reading the books of the people that are like us or if we keep reading the books of the white man, um, we keep listening to white men. Um, <laughs> I wish I wasn't one, but never mind. Um, then we, yeah, we just get that feedback loop. Um, it's, it's just like, yeah, the echo chamber in social media and um, of just drawing like minds to ourselves. And it's the great danger in a community like this too of, of us drawing sameness to sameness and not having voices within our community that really disrupt that kind of comfortable relationship with the Bible, that it, it, it kind of is a mirror for what I want to be true. Um, so, but we do have difference here um, and we don't want to downplay that, but we need to create an environment where that difference can emerge and we can um, embrace it. Be great to have more time for comments, but I'm aware of the time. Moving on, so we'll just um, have communion now. So I guess as we as we move to communion, it's important to remember that it wasn't just Paul who had a tendency to confuse and alienate some of his listeners. Uh, Jesus had a habit of doing this as well. And uh, I'm going to read John 6, 53 to 69 um, as a lead-in to us having communion. Jesus said to them, What I'm about to tell you is true. You must eat the Son of Man's body and drink his blood. If you don't, you have no life in you. Anyone who eats my body and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. My body is real food. My blood is real drink. Anyone who eats my body and drinks my blood remains in me, and I remain in them. The living Father sent me, and I live because of him. In the same way, those who feed on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Long ago your people ate manna and died, but whoever eats this bread will live forever. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus' disciples heard this. Many of them said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining about his teaching, so he said to them, does this upset you? And what if you see the Son of Man go up to where he was before? The Holy Spirit gives life. The body means nothing at all. The words I have spoken to you are full of the Spirit. They give life. And there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and he had known who was going to hand him over to his enemies. So he continued speaking. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father helps them. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back. They no longer followed him. You don't want to leave also, do you? Jesus asked the 12 disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, who can we go to? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So as we eat Jesus' flesh and we drink his blood, let us pray that God will give us the humility, the wisdom and the imagination to find a source of life and inspiration, an inspiration to love in this 2,000-year-old book written by this difficult man. So let's have communion together. Eat and drink. Mm -hmm.